This is Steve Harvey, hoping you're having a super flight on Emirates today. Now, you're in for a special treat, as here in the Emirates World Studio, I'm delighted to welcome one of the best poets around today. He's Lem Sisse, and I had the pleasure of interviewing Lem a couple of years back in Dubai when he attended his first festival of literature. So, Lem, welcome to Emirates. They must have liked you because they invited you back. Are you looking forward to jumping on that A380 in March and heading off to the sunshine of Dubai? I certainly am. This is one of the events uh, in a writer's career where the journey is as good or as enjoyable as the destination or at least the journey sets you up for a a, a wonderful arrival and time uh, in the destination. It's a tough task isn't it? Oh it's a really difficult one. (laughs) What's your recollections of your first visit? One of the joys of the visit begins in the airport lounge uh, because there are other writers there. I remember Richard and Judy, uh, very famous television presenters and book lovers uh, being in there and various other great writers. So as the journey began, the festival began. Uh, I remember reading a poem, Beneath the Stars, uh, in the desert. That was incredibly beautiful. And a, a camel... I walked over the edge of the sand dune while I was reading poetry and settled just behind me. Um, Unforgettable. Unforgettable. And the most enjoyable part of this festival is meeting all of the other writers who feel equally joyous to be there, to be seeing each other there, and to be in the... I want to say luxury, but I mean luxury in the way that culture embraces community. That's what I mean by luxury, you know, and that's what we felt as writers. We were both able to communicate with each other in the green room and with the audience on the way to events. Yeah, there was no uh, lines that seemed to separate us from the literature lovers who came to the gig. And, And in fact, people came to the events who'd heard of some of the famous uh, writers who were there, who were also either television presenters or comedians, but who, you know, I don't like the idea that literature is some separate thing to our community. You know, it's, it's a part of who we are. We're constantly reading. All films are based on books or based on writing, script, etc. All adverts or, you know... And this festival seems to celebrate the written word in a way that um, that it should be celebrated. Now, Dubai is very much associated with glitzy skyscrapers and lovely beaches and so on and so forth. Did it surprise you that a place like Dubai would actually hold a literature festival in the first place? Um Yeah, because, yes, it did surprise me that Dubai would be associated with such a great literature festival as well. Yeah, it did, because, yeah, it's known, Dubai is known uh, in a stereotypical way, possibly, as the shopping centre and the uh, very rich, uh, financially rich uh, part of the world. But there's a lot that we don't know about Dubai before we go there, and... uh, For example, I didn't know that there were so many people from different parts of the world in Dubai. I didn't really know what the constituents of Dubai were. It's a very multicultural society there. Yes, it is. And they're 
for for me, it's a great example to the world on how to live. I'm sure it's got its problems and its issues, etc., like all cultures do. But I just did not know the richness of diversity that was in Dubai. Uh, and I realized when I was there that I don't actually didn't I didn't know much about uh, Dubai or the Arab Emirates. You know, I had an image of them which had been sold to me, I don't know how, through the newspapers here in England or, or whatever. But in fact, the the tolerance of Dubai is is a surprise to me, actually. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love the idea that Dubai is bringing in culture or celebrating culture and that that is forming uh, new shoots in young minds, you know, and old minds as well. Hey, Lam, I introduced you as a poet and so I'm going to take full advantage of your being in our studio today and ask that you read us one of your poems. I'm sure by now people listening to us chatting on this Emirates flight are dying to hear one of your poems. What would you like to start off with? Ooh, what to choose, what to choose. What are you looking at at the moment? What, what, this well, is one of your latest uh, books, I believe. Yeah, it's called Gold from the Stone, and it's an anthology. Uh, it's a, a selection of poems from my different books of poetry since the age of 17, 18 years. Oh, wow. um, so this is like a greatest hits of Lem Sisse, is it? Sort of, yeah. Um, well, this is called For My Headstone. Here is the death of the sun you never had, the hand you never touched, the face you never stroked. Here is the morning after, his bruises you never tended, the laughter you never shared. And here are the tears he'll never feel, your eyes he'll never see, whispers he'll never hear. The apologies will squirm in his coffin with the letters you never wrote. That sounds quite personal. It is personal, yeah. It's um, it's a poem that I wrote about after I found my birth mother, uh, and I I kept trying to write to her, and she she wasn't wasn't replying to me, and so this is basically saying it's titled for my headstone, and it's saying you know, here is the death of the son you never had, the hand you never touched, the face you never stroked. The more she didn't reply to me, the more she ignored me, the more I felt that I was disappearing. And I was just wondering, you know, how many people, when, when somebody dies, they think about what they could have done. Here is the morning after, his bruises you never tended, the laughter you never shared, and here are the tears he'll never feel, your eyes he'll never see, whispers he'll never hear, the apologies will squirm in his coffin with the letters you never wrote. It's three, six, nine, twelve, twelve lines long. So you've piqued my curiosity now. Lem, you talk about the birth mother you, you, you never met. It must have been an interesting childhood. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? I do, yeah. There are too many secrets in life and they can sometimes get calloused and... Uh, become difficult to carry. My mother came from Ethiopia to England in 1967 and found herself pregnant. She was here to study for a short period of time um, and she gave me to a social worker to have me fostered for a short period of time while she was studying um, when she would take me back to uh, Ethiopia. 
and um, the social worker gave me to foster parents and said, treat this as an adoption, is yours forever. His name's Norman. The social worker named me after himself. My name was Lem Sisse on my birth certificate. So the foster parents wanted to call me Mark after Mark in the Bible and their last name was Greenwood. So I thought my name was Norman Mark Greenwood. They told me that my mother had left me and hated me and was an evil woman, etc. Um, and they, they, they said they were my parents forever and, and I grew up in a village in Lancashire. I was the only black child in this village, you know, so I grew up. And then at 12 years of age, they deemed the devil to be inside of me. They were deeply religious. I'm not against religion. I'm not against um, uh, Christianity or the Baptist faith, which was their chosen sort of um, area of, um, of belief in Christianity. And... Uh, they put me into children's homes and said they'd never write to me again or speak to me, and they never did. And I lost everybody. I lost my mother, my father, my sisters, my brothers, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my grandparents, my first girlfriend, my school, my street, my town, everything that I'd related to up until that point. I lost, and I was held in four different children's homes until I was 18 years of age. Then I was given my birth certificate, and my birth certificate had my name on it, Lem Sisse, and that's when I realised that my name was not Norman Mark Greenwood. Everybody in that name had betrayed me in some way. So up and until that time, you had no idea what your real name was? No, absolutely none. Did no. that come as a shock to you? Um, it was a shock, but it was also actually... Uh, it was an indication that there had been a lie somewhere, that something wrong had happened, because nobody told me that something wrong happened. When my foster parents put me into the children's homes, they said that it's because the devil was inside of me, that there was some form of evil that was working through me, and that if I, I had to work my, 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 I had to work my, myself with God to correct that. Uh, and at the children's homes, nobody admitted that this had all been a mess. So they were just trying to hold me until I became an adult when I would go into the, a different administration. I would go into adult services. So legally, they had to give me my birth certificate. It wasn't because they wanted to somehow come clean. So it's like, this is your name, this is your birth certificate, this is your mother's name. And so from that moment onwards, my mission was to find my family and to unravel this story, to find out what what had happened to me because I believed that I hadn't done anything wrong but then with my foster parents or in the children's homes but then I had to I had to prove it because all family is is a group of people proving that each other exists over a lifetime all family is is a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime and I had nobody to dispute the memory of me with when I left the children's homes I didn't know anybody who'd known me for longer than a year I left the foster parents at 12 years of age. The, 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 I lost every... They said they would never write to me, contact me again. They didn't. Each children's home had children moving in and out of it every six months, four months, three months. The staff changed every two hours. I was in four children's homes over um, six years, which meant that I was never in a children's home longer than 18 months. I left care not knowing somebody who knew me for longer than a year and by know me I mean they'd invited me to their house for me to eat food with them and break bread so I was aware of holding on to a story that that I hadn't done anything wrong but that everything indicated that I might have 
What was your mother doing all this time? Um, well, the revolution in Ethiopia happened in 1974. That's the, the communists overthrew the emperor Haile Selassie. So that's seven years after I was born. My mother went back to Ethiopia. She wrote letters to the social worker pleading for me to come back. And she wrote those letters uh, from Ethiopia. Um, when I left the children's homes, a social worker, a good man, said to me, somebody did love you. And he gave me letters from my mother pleading for me back. So that I had proof. I had proof that my mother wanted me. I had proof that she had me fostered for a short period of time. And she was writing to a social worker whose name was Norman. He'd named me after himself. So there's the lie. Okay, there's proof of a mother who wants her son who was rich enough to be able to come to Ethiopia in 1967 uh, and not want to live in England. She just wanted to finish her studies there and then go back. I had letters from her pleading for me back. The revolution happened in 1974. My mother went back to Ethiopia and married the vice minister to finance under the emperor Haile Selassie, a man called Ashinafi Shifero, who's still alive in Addis Ababa. Uh, part of the aristocracy of, of, of Addis as it was for the Amhara people in particular, who were the main administration of Ethiopia. So this little boy from Ethiopia is in search of this incredible story which is unfolding before him. Uh, Ashinafi Shifaro was jailed because he was a minister and the communist, uh, which became known as the Red Terror, jailed him. He was freed in 1994. Yeah, and, and, and so my mother had to flee the country, basically. So within seven years of her going back to Ethiopia, uh, she had to flee the country, and she was working for the United Nations, and she's basically travelling around the world, stationed in various different countries. So the question on everybody's lips now, were you reunited? Reunited. <laughs> you know that song? Do you remember that song? Um... I was reunited, yeah. I did find her. I found her when I was 21. She was uh, working for the United Nations Development Programme, the UNDP, in The Gambia, which is a small country uh, next to Senegal, next to the coast there. And, um, yeah, I, I flew over and, uh, and I met her uh, in Fajara Beach, which is where a lot of the diplomats and businessmen and women of The Gambia uh, politicians lived. What were your emotions and what were her emotions on that day? My emotions were uh, quite... I didn't know how to be. I mean, how do you say to somebody, you know, I am your son, are you my mother? These are questions, words that shouldn't really fit together. So it's quite awkward. There's, there's no Lion King moment. I think when we first met and hugged each other in the dusk uh, as the car drove away. I think that was a moment. And she also gave me a gabby. I didn't know at the time. But um, a gabby is a piece of Ethiopian cloth. And I didn't know this, that, that mothers give a gabby to their child and they keep it forever. And, uh, you know, I took it back to England and lost it or gave it away to somebody at some point without ever realising what it meant symbolically. 
And uh, I think that's where the difference is between us. We both did not understand each other. She didn't just see me. She saw... The last time she saw my father, who was not her husband, I would have looked like him. So she saw him and I saw a stranger. I'd like you to read us another poem, if you wouldn't mind. And this one is going to be very interesting. You wrote it when you were quite young. It's called Mother. Yeah. Um, how how old were you when you when you wrote this? Well, I was 17 when I wrote this poem, and it was before I, I'd met my mum, and it's the first poem in my book, and nobody's ever asked me to read this poem before, so it's going to be... I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it, actually. I don't know. When you read a poem that you wrote at 17 years of age, it's a bit like looking at your own diary entry at 17. You know, it's it feels slightly um, revealing and unrefined. And um, but that's okay. Mother, mother, what will I say to you? Will I tell you about what I've been through? Mother, will you criticise? Mother, will you see it through my eyes? Mother, what will you say to me? It's through your eyes I'd like to see. Mother, will you criticise? Mother, will you see it through my eyes? Mother, what will you say to me? Mother, will you read my poetry? Am I just what you want me to be? Mother, will you see it through my eyes? Mother, what will you say to me? Am I just what you want me to be? Or mother, will you criticise? Mother, will you see it through my eyes? I mean, that's quite amazing for me to read now because that's quite prophetic and I think poetry can do that because our relationship is extremely difficult and she doesn't talk to me. And it's just, I think that when I found her, I think she's had such a hard life. I mean, she's always been working, she's lived in great places, but she's dedicated her life to, to making sure that her children get through their education, do well. She lost her husband, she lost her entire country. Um, and um, I think I was just one breakage too much. And I totally understand as well. Did you ever find out whether you had brothers and sisters? Yeah, I had. I've got on my mum's side, I've got brothers and sisters who were, um, they, I mean, when I was in the children's homes, they were studying with horse riding lessons as extracurricular activity. They went to L'Ecole des Roches. In just outside of Paris, a public school there, and then uh, I, one of them went to Agronomique College in um, Belgium. And one of them works in the city in Paris, one of them in New York, one of them is a major exporter in, um, in West Africa. So you have got a family now that you can enjoy, nephews, nieces, and so on. I guess I have, yeah. I guess I have. In truth, um, I've come to realise that many of them, if not 99% of them, won't speak to me or many of them wish that I didn't speak my story and therefore welcome to family. <laughs> you know, family is a group of people who've taken video of one event and all of them argue about whose video should be used in the editing suite to tell the final version of the story. 
You know, family is about people trying to own story. That's why family members don't talk to each other because they don't want a contradiction to the story that they've built about the family. And when you find your family, you're like a bull in a china shop. You, you Imagine somebody was to walk into your home and stand there and say, well, I belong here now. By the way, I'm the, older, I'm the oldest son. Uh, I don't want anything from you. I'm just saying I'm the oldest one. You know, the effect that has on a family is both welcome back, back off, you know. And, and, and so it takes, I've had to wait for some family members to go through the traumas of their own for them to start to understand what it is uh, that I am. I'm just somebody who just arrived out of the blue and families are really complicated. I just wish sometimes that people would just put it aside, let it go put it down, get on with loving each other because, you know, that's the most important thing. Will your parents take it to the grave or your brother or your sister or whoever they fell out, whoever you've fallen out with in your family? Of course they'll take it to the grave. You know, forgiveness is such a powerful, powerful thing to do. And, and I, I can see people and feel people sometimes tense up how can I forgive my father for what he did or how can I forgive my mother for what she did or my brother or my sister actually you can you, you know you've restricted yourself by saying you can't by saying you can't forgive somebody you think that you are stopping them from further damaging you when in fact quite possibly you've further damaged yourself when I forgave my foster parents for what they did to me I didn't realise this, but when I did, face to face, I realised that I'd been carrying this lack of forgiveness into every other relationship that I'd had in my life. I, I didn't realise that. That as close as somebody got to me, the fact that I could not forgive this primary person in my family actually had an effect on all of my other behaviours. And I didn't realise that. I've still got a lot of forgiving to do. You know, but um, but we work through our stuff bit by bit. Does poetry help in that respect? You know, I've got to say that poetry has probably given me access to the strength to find my family and to continue the journey. Um, it's both given it to me financially as well as emotionally. And my poems really are, for me, flags in the mountainside where I can chart my journey in lieu of family. You're one of Britain's favourite poets. You read your poems at an FA Cup final. You were the official poet for the 2012 London Olympics. Lem, over, over the years, what's given you the, the greatest buzz, if you like, looking on the plus side now? Oh, wow, there's so much. I mean, being at Ethiopia, in Ethiopia performing at the National Theatre in front of 800 people who've all come there to see me and have and see me read poetry and have uh, an audience member shout out, welcome home, Lem. You know, by the way, I'm at home in Ethiopia, I'm at home in London, I'm at home in New York, it's, it's, it's all good, but it's, it's just, it's just, that, that was a beautiful moment and to read my poems in Ethiopia and to be known and stopped on the street by people in Ethiopia to say, you know, welcome, we, we, we love you, we love what you do. I mean, isn't that an incredible oh. thing? For that boy who was brought up in a Lancashire village, 
who's right now performing at the Royal Court Theatre in London for a play about Lancashire, you know, about those villages. You know, to have the, the son of Sylvia Pankhurst, who was buried in Ethiopia, the suffragette, uh, Richard Pankhurst, her son, who's passed away recently, actually, to have him organise a poetry reading at the university in Addis Ababa for me to read. I mean, there are so many highlights. I feel blessed. And you say that with a huge smile on your face. I do. It's just such a great place to get to, you know. We've got to fight for ourselves, man. You were once asked to be introduced to an audience as Lem Sisse. He loves what he does, and he does what he loves. Would you say that sums you up? Yeah, it is, yeah. And, Steve, it's nice to be reminded of that. Because as we get into our work, and as I do, I sometimes forget, and I have to remind myself of that. It's so easy to be going around the, the, the hamster wheel, however gilded it is, you know, and, and it's really good to stop and just go, oh, I am doing what I love, and I love what I do, and I have to do it to the best of my ability. Lem, I'm sure a lot of people listening to us now on this Emirates flight will feel that they know you just that little bit better, and I hope, I truly hope, that they make the effort to come to the Festival of Literature and meet you in person and shake your hands because, from my point of view anyway, I find you very inspirational and it's always a great, great pleasure and privilege talking to you. So thank you very, very much for joining us on this Emirates flight today and see you in Dubai in March. See you there. Thanks. <laughs>